Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Helicopter money. Um, Would it work better than QE? Well, Chairman Bernanke has dedicated his whole academic career in discussing that. In reality, uh, if you're a central bank and you want to find ways of signaling that you're going to raise inflation and guide inflation expectations higher, there are several avenues. And the more uh, dovish you come across, the more reckless you you come across, in theory, that has a bigger impact on inflation expectations. In many ways, what we have seen over the last couple of years is central banks not doing enough to stimulate inflation expectations, let's but, just say. I mean, not doing enough. I'm not sure what they can do. If you think about it, it's been seven years. We're near zero almost every major economy. They've done so much, and that's not forcing politicians to do more. Well, think of Japan, the prime example, right? Right. 2015 has been a year of major fiscal consolidation rather than fiscal expansion. Uh, Around 2015, just when the whole market was thinking that easing would come after easing, guiding the yen higher and higher, and weaker and weaker and weaker against the dollar, instead what you have seen has been a lukewarm response with uh, central bankers not, you know, meeting expectations for the markets, and that has driven the yen stronger. So it has actually worked against it. Think of the Fed. The Fed in sight of the potential that labor markets may eventually lead to some signs of inflation has warned about rate hikes already by September 2014, and it's partly responsible for the market volatility that we have seen around January and February. Simos, I want to congratulate you and UBS and your Rock Montero on the single best page I've seen on helicopter money uh, yet. You go through the Mundell-Fleming structure and ISLM Euclidean geometry, and you talk about the need for monetary easing. Bring up the yen chart right now. Why is the yen stronger? And UBS beautifully walks through this. So you get tightening and you get a stronger yen. I get that. And the requirement is monetary easing on the backside, almost a sterilization of the policy. Are we going to see that? Well, when you're delivering fiscal easing or about one to one and a half percent of GDP in an economy where trend growth is around 0.5, it's a significant amount of easing. And the market comes to expect that there may be a point that if you take that further out, it may lead to some level of higher real rates in a typical sort of right. standard economic uh, in, uh, approach. Real rates go higher. We have seen that uh, since the last um, Bank of Japan meeting. In the yen strength. said that. And the yen strengthens on the back of higher real rates. Uh, And in order to offset that, you need a central bank that convinces us that no matter what uh, the effects of fiscal easing are on growth or inflation, they'll keep on doing more and more. If you really want to uh, push inflation expectations higher and offset that increase in real rates. Will we see, but this is critical. This is absolutely critical. Are we going to see that? And Themos, you know what this is about. This is about courage and will. Do you detect that courage from the Bank of Japan? Well, we have hoped they would uh, demonstrate uh, that kind of easing resolve uh, since uh, late 2015. Their behavior over the last nine months has been much more close to soul-searching rather than uh, some kind of determination to push the needle. Uh, So the overall policy mix 
has shifted from a very easy monetary environment to a place where the market has been expecting helicopter money. And more recently, over the last couple of weeks, helicopter has become something closer to a submarine. Holger, <laughs> thoughts? Well, the standard thought on Japan is, of course, they have for the last 25 years done a lot with fiscal and monetary policy to stimulate growth. And has never worked for long. We all know what Japan really needs is the structural reforms to raise the trend rate of growth. Of course, with helicopter money or anything dramatic, they could probably, if they're really aggressive, weaken the currency for a while. They might that way through important inflation even get inflation and inflation yeah. expectations up. But after a year or so, it would be over again and they'd be back to their old trend growth rate for me. The Japanese debate should be about very different things than helicopter money. I mean, Thanos, the thing is that helicopter money uh, is, you know, what it is, um, uh, which is why the, hel the image of a helicopter distributing money is so appealing. But you could argue that QE and ultimately low interest rates gives you that extra money in your pockets, right, because you don't have the inflation that you're fighting with your wage growth. And that's extra money. And if people aren't spending that, then why would they go and spend helicopter money? There's, there's, these are beautiful questions and very deep in economic intuition. The main problem in many post-financial crisis environments is that the transmission mechanism between uh, what policymakers do <clears throat> and what ends up being the ultimate result in the economy tends to be uh, quite broken down. And therefore, policymakers are called to find different ways of distributing money. QE has been all about inflating assets and giving people more disposable income. And uh, helicopter money is a different way of forcing people to spend conceptually, again, in Ben Bernanke's sort of like academic uh, work. I, I would like to disagree, though, on one quick thing, um, all due respect. Uh, since 2012, you saw a clear breakthrough in Japan. Uh, inflation expectations between 2012 and 2015 have re increased from zero to one and a half percent, and that has been meaningful progress. And all the progress from Abenomics has been unwound within six months of the Bank of Japan sending the wrong signal. So although we can discuss the last 30 years of growth, an experiment that was quite promising was interrupted in a very odd well, well, fashion. Well, I would say just getting inflation expectations up is not the purpose of any economic policy. Japan, That's, I allow me to disagree. The single, Japan, biggest, this, this single biggest driver of inflation is not the labor market, it's not growth, it's inflation expectations. And Japan's problem is not deflation. Japan's problem is a very low rate of trend growth which is where the third Aren't arrow of abenomics, the structural reforms should have come in but never came in. That's I mean, the I basic would, failure I would, of yeah, Japan. I would say Japan would, has like many problems, including you know, structural because of demographics, uh, they don't have enough immigration, they certainly don't have enough uh, women labor participation. Deflation is probably only a part of, of growth. And, right? and, it's not, and it's not a key thing. Switzerland has been living happily with an inflation rate roughly the same as Japan for a long time. The difference is Switzerland has sound structural Okay, Holger, let me ask Japan you this. Would you, be worried, right would you be worried if Europe became Japan, would you not be worried about the economic concoction that the central bank would have to deal with? I would not be worried about Europe having an inflation rate like Japan very much. I'd be worried about any country having the no immigration of Japan, having the structural rigidities of Japan. Japan and actually, if you look across Europe, the difference between economies is not yeah. zero inflation, Spain growing 3%, zero inflation, right. Greece uh, in yeah. recession. The difference is structural pro-growth okay. 
policies. And Tom, I want this to is dove- fascinating. No, it's, it's very important. I want to dovetail this wonderful debate. Thamos, when I think of structural rigidities, I think within your fabulous work of the rigidities of the real economy. If I look at the so-called elasticity of the real economy, the IS curve within your analysis, does the Bank of Japan have the tools to affect a real economic outcome for Japan? I'm not convinced they do. Well, when it comes to real interest rates or even nominal interest rates, uh, you know, the uh, Bank of Japan can affect the LM curve in many different ways. And in fact, real rates have moved so much Uh, over the last three years, which stands as proof that we're not in a space where monetary policy shifts have no effect uh, on real interest rate or inflation expectations, as standard arguments about a liquidity trap would argue. Uh, You know, the Bank of Japan has a lot of tools. Uh, I just think that inflation rates are highly uh, misunderstood at this uh, point. Disinflation is a very global phenomenon. Uh, It requires some very global uh, attempts to raise inflation expectations, and policymakers have actually not done enough to foster right. that. Actually, in terms of structural uh, items, I would like to highlight that GDP per capita in Japan in the last 30 to 40 years has actually grown not that far from what the U.S. or Europe has right. done. I'll, I'll yes, go- they have low population growth, but that doesn't mean they're not Agreed. Growing. I take your point at Holger, do you have any confidence that the dynamics of the money system within Japan, as signified by the LM curve, can move over to the real economy and help Mr. Abe with his voters? Can, can, can they shift all this monetary mumbo-jumbo over to a real economic good outcome for Japan? First of all, I do agree monetary policy still works to some extent. The transmission mechanism is impaired but not fully broken across the Western world. That also to some extent still holds for Japan. My point is more that with monetary policy, you could only buy a modest short-term boost to demand, but you could not fix the longer-term problems of any economy, including Japan. So, yes, a significantly more aggressive Bank of Japan would be able to do something about the short-term cyclical outlook for Japan, but a year later we'd be back to where we were, insufficient trend growth in the economy, which is paying for its current adventures and recent adventures with piling up too much debt. With us from Florida, Douglas Cass of Seabreeze uh, Partners, who has been a short on the market, and he's been watching the market walk away. Let's. I want to talk first about the rules of the game. You write beautifully on a musical event of a few years ago. That would be Woodstock, which I believe you attended uh, and survived. I put a photo out of you four rows and three rows back from his girl, a black and white photo from Woodstock, vintage 1969, I think it it was. Are the rules the same as when you were partying at Woodstock? (laughs) That's the hardest question I've ever been asked on. Are the investment rules the same? I think the investment rules are always the same. Um, Again... Uh, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Everything to me is reward versus risk, upside versus downside, whether mm-hmm. it's a market, whether it's a sector of the market or individual security. When you look at this, 
You look at people that are nervous about pricing. They want to participate in cash. They want to be short like you, and yet it walks away. How do you handle that? Look, I personally believe, Tina, there is no alternative. And FOMO, fear of missing out, which is a hackneyed Kim Kardashian phrase. But it's really true. I think they're, I think they're BS. I think CITA, C-I-T-A, cash is the alternative. With 80% of the securities trading above the 200-day moving average, with a, uh, a central banking-infused speculative bubble mm. in equities around the world, right. and the biggest bubble of all, of all in the bond to, market. How do you respond, Doug Cash, to Martin Zweig's iconic phrase, a trend is your friend? you got to get on board Danaher, Colgate, I don't own those, and other blue-chip stocks because there is no alternative, as Dennis Gartman would say. It's interesting side note. I was on the board of directors of Danaher and the chairman of the executive committee. When we took over, I, Danaher's predecessor firm was Diversified Mortgage Group, which to date myself was the old IDS Realty in Minneapolis which had a large tax loss carry forward and was on the edge of bankruptcy. And I ended up selling the firm to the Rails Brothers, who changed the name to Danaher. Look, if you're a short seller like myself and you see the glass is half empty, not half full, you have to figure out how to structure your short book, how to, how to create defined risk so you know exactly what your risks are in a market that seems to elevate every month. So I use that. I do that through puts, synthetic shorts, shorting stock, buying out of the mm -hmm. money calls, I define my risk. It's almost as important as the specific stock you're shorting. Right. You had the shenanigans long ago and far away of Bernie Kornfeld. We yes. had the shenanigans win an Academy Award with a big short. What are the shenanigans now that disrupt the market? Well, I would say the two areas of my concern, the so-called shenanigans, would be in China where there is a lack of transparency and accounting is opaque and so are the operational We saw results. that with Alibaba, Alibaba a bit ago. And secondly, the Euro European banking institutions, I'm an old banking right. analyst. I wrote a book with Ralph Nader called Citibank back in 1974. Um, and their portfolios are, first of all, the companies, the banking institutions in Europe are very leveraged. Uh, banking is an important part of commerce, four or five times more important than the role of the banking community in the United States. And they're filled with toxic assets and artificially low bonds, you know, low-yielding bonds, which could, you know, turn in a nanosecond. But the critical distinction is corporate officers removing themselves from those fears by focusing on revenues, bringing it down the income statement, generating free cash flow through expense control. Granted, sometimes it's negative things they're doing, but they can, they can generate persistent free cash flow. Yes. Until the cows come home. Yes. The cost of capital is very low in a low-rate environment by definition. Right. Free cash flow is exceedingly high, but as I mentioned off camera, I'm sure at Disney because I believe in peak sports viewership and that this, this uh, hemorrhaging of ESPN right. subscribers will continue. Their cost of capital is one and a half percent, Rich, but the stock's gone. Rich Greenfield of BTIG was on yesterday. Thank you for listening. Doug Cass, our 42nd listener here on Bloomberg Surveillance. But if, if Greenfield and Cass feel that way, my thesis is Mr. Iger will adapt and adjust to a better Disney. Do you see that corporate will in America? No, but as it relates to Disney, what can you do? He's like Apple, a victim of his successes. The cash cow 
responsible for 65% of operating profits is the media segment, the mm -hmm. media line at Disney. ESPN. There's nothing you can do about it. It's in a secular decline. And that's what a short seller looks for, changing business landscape, right. structural changes in business landscape. In terms of the entire market, if we look, to follow up on a question you had before, if we look at gap profit margins, they're at the lowest level since 2006 at a point in time where the S&P was 700 points lower. Mm -hmm. So the, there's, there's so much you could do in terms of financial engineering. You have to <clears throat> right. look at your revenue and your top line and the compression and margins. Right. I want to rip up the script here and go back to shorting 101. The cardinal rule of shorting, whether you're Jim Chanos or Doug Cass or mom and pop at home, is you got to have a lousy stock in a lousy sector in a lousy market. You don't have all that right now, do you? No, and never, ever short valuation. Yeah. But the bottom line is, you, you, do you wait with a short view to get that short, lousy stock, short sector, you know, weak sector rather, and finally get a market that rolls over? We don't have that setup. You tend we? not to short the market, and you tend to short individual stocks, whether it's Disney, Apple, right. Nordstrom's, Foot Locker, uh, and Nike, the life insurance companies. Let's look at the life insurance companies really quickly. Right. Who are the anti-beneficiaries of the central bank's largesse? Well, the, the life insurance companies, because they because they have reduced reinvestment opportunities. Right. So you look at Lincoln National, you look at Metropolitan Life. These stocks are down 45 percent in a, in, a, in the last year and a half in a wild bull market. So you have to really focus on individual mm -hmm. security. I want you to judge, and I say this with great respect for both you and Mr. Ackman. Bill Ackman has been a pinata, and part of that pinata is his visibility. Um, the, the, almost the notoriety of justifying his positions in all that. Is, is the work of Bill Ackman just falling in love with a story and sticking with it? How do you judge Mr. Ackman's performance? I think he's been too vocal. Mm. Um, there are only a handful, if that, of investors that have delivered superior investment returns by investing in a concentrated manner. Obviously, Warren Buffett is the iconic figure. But even Sequoia under, stumbled at one Sequoia point. Sequoia Blue with Valiant and, yeah. and other securities. So you have to be damn right on the timing and the price you pay. Value is right. what you get. Price is what, what you pay. What exposure do you take typically? Like your, your doom and gloom on Apple, do you take a 10% or 12%? No, when I, I am a very conservative short seller. Um, you know, I've made money in, the, in an advancing market in the last two years. Um, and as a result, I'm highly diversified. I try to find risk-defined products like puts or synthetic right. shorts. I short a stock by out-of-the-money calls to define my aggregate, my individual risk and aggregate portfolio risk. Right. So in terms of percentages, <clears throat> my longs are never more than 3 or 4%, and my shorts are never okay. more than 2%. I want to translate what Mr. Cash just said as a pro, and I'm not going to get into option theory right now. The mathematics of concentration, folks, is brutal. And the question is, where's the tip point? And I would say, Doug, with all my research and math on this, it's about 3% exposure. I think that's You get out right. over 3%. And the proverbial phrase is, you're, you're out over, over your skis. skis. I mean, you're out over your skis. Right. And, and maybe with great respect for Mr. Ackman, those people that are concentrated, your geniuses, until the, you get that one that stumbles. The great philosopher, Mae West, once said, too much of a good thing can this be is, wonderful. And I am the anti Is this appropriate for radio? I don't know. And I'm Usually, the anti May West. I believe in <clears throat> diversification, especially as a short seller. Because, of right. course, risk and reward is asymmetric. 
you can lose an infinite amount to the upside, and you can only make 100% if you find a banker. Doug Kess with his series partners, Barry Ritholtz, uh, has been with us. It's a hat trick of excitement, Barry, three days in a row. Now, you don't work Fridays 12 months of the year, right? No, on on the summer, during the summer, I Which work is from rem- February to November, Memorial right? Day to Labor Day, I will work remotely from an undisclosed location. That's what I do. I do that every day of the week. Barry Red also this. Why don't you jump in with your good friend, Doug? Sure. So, so, Doug, I know that you've been really um, not impressed with the underlying fundamentals of this market, and I've heard you discuss um, fear of missing out and there is no alternative but how much of, of what's going on is, is also a function of the unrelenting bid, as my colleague Josh Brown calls it, the relentless flow of money into 401ks, into IRAs, where big shops like Vanguard and Fidelity and BlackRock have to put this money to work. What, what is the alternative? That is a constant that inflow of monies, institutional uh, retail money into these products. Does However, it ebb and flow? Never, eh, there's not much material change over time. But what is new in today's horizon is the dominance of quant strategies, mm-hmm. uh, volatility trending, risk parity strategies, all these strategies which are key to price and risk and are agnostic to income statements and balance sheets. Right. When coupled with the other dominant buyer being um, corporations mm-hmm. repurchasing their stock and arguably indifferent towards price. Or, or at point, least really poorly timed towards Poorly timed. Price. Case in point, Caterpillar over the last two years, Cisco, GE over the last 15 years, Dell, poster child Dell, for poster child, standard, stock buyback. Standard bearer for, for poor capital allocation strategy. So um, – so the so-called dominant investor has changed. We go back. We went back in the prior segment talking about the bank trust departments, which created the Nifty 50 in the mm-hmm. early 70s. Then, of course, you had the prolif- proliferation of mutual funds. And then you had um, the onset of a huge hedge fund uh, industry. So, But today it's corporations and quant strategies. When it will end, anyone knows. So given this underlying bid – uh, that you obviously don't like, and if whether it's quants or corporations and buybacks or what have you, is there really an alternative to fighting the tape? I mean, it seems like most people with a long-term horizon have no choice but to participate in the equity markets and the bond if markets. If you are an individual investor mm-hmm. with a normal risk appetite and profile and a time frame which is measured Decades. in a decade or more mm-hmm. rather than a month or a year – the answer is yes. You're probably best situation situated with a good money manager like yourself or a passive investment fund like the Spiders, which are tax efficient, uh, low transaction course, costs, and, and very liquid. Um, but for some of us who have time frames under two or three years, that's a different story. So, you know, I see the, as you said, I see the glass half empty. So you mentioned hedge funds. Um, uh, along with corporates, but you, you've run a hedge fund for a long time. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the pressures of that, because I speak to people who are either familiar with the various well-known hedge fund managers or have money with hedge funds, and I get the sense that they don't have any idea that the pressures aren't even in years or quarters. It's it's months and weeks. I mean, as a hedge fund manager, 
Do you look at the close every but, day and but wonder? Barry, should it be different if you're charging 2% fixed fee and 20% of profits? That's the way it should be. In other words, there's a huge demand to deliver superior investment returns over, over a relatively days? short period Weeks? of time. Over a relatively short period of time. It depends what your hedge, hedge hogger, your hedge fund right. manager, has yeah. he earned the stripes over a period of time. This is critical. The epsilon, on the back end, on the right-hand side of the equation, folks, there's always this Greek letter, epsilon. Is the epsilon so messed up right now, so screwed up, that basically hedge funds can't create alpha unless it's luck? Yes, is the short answer. I mean, I mean, Barry, I think this is the heart of the matter, is, is the systemic risk out there is so odd because of this great distortion I'm not sure how you predict how you create predictive alpha. I, I would modify that and say the great managers, and I include Lee Cooperman and Howard Marks. We could throw Doug into the mix as one of the world's great short sellers, and Jim Chanos. Right. Their alpha has been created over years. Right. Is it unreasonable for clients to say, "What have you done for me today?" I don't think it's unreasonable to ask, "What have you done for me over the last six months or twelve months?" Given given right. the, given the given the cost structure of a hedge fund, okay. 2 and 20. Don't be a stranger. I mean, try to work a longer week than Barry Reynolds. That's a oh good God. start. Doug Cass with us. Barry Reynolds uh, with us today. Barry, I want to talk about another idea that you highlighted, and this is Noah Smith's fabulous op-ed on the mathiness mm -hmm. of economics where he has a primal scream. I'm sorry, you need some math. Do we need some math in our investment? Sure, we, we absolutely do. Using, using data, using numbers to figure out quantitatively, and, and Doug kind of railed about that earlier, but understanding what works mathematically, understanding mean reversion, yeah. understanding valuation, you can't do this without <clears throat> math. The problem with economics, it went from a social science with zero math to uh, what some people have called physics envy, and that's the PG-rated version of it. Right. Um, physics envy where it's all math, and that doesn't work. Humans are in the middle right. of economics, and so you need a little Bob Schiller mixed up with your Cliff Asnes. And, and this is, oh, I like that. Cliff Asnes, I got a great respect for Mr. Asnes' work. Olivier Blanchard publishing literally yesterday on this for Adam Posen's Peterson Institute, excuse mm -hmm. me, on DSGE, which is the underlying theory of modern macro thinking. Richard Clareda, among others, uh, really providing leadership on this. Barry, would you suggest the old economic math of the last 20 years doesn't work anymore? Well, I think uh, yes and no. Uh, yes with a little asterisk. When, when you leave out the fact that homo economist doesn't exist, humans aren't perfectly rational. Humans aren't profit maximizing. Humans often do what they think is in their best interest at that moment, but we know isn't in their long-term interest. That's why reliance on models, reliance on math has to be taken with a dose of what about the random human factor in, uh, amongst all of this? So it's not that the math is wrong. The math, math is fine. And one day when our robot, robot overlords replace us, I think economics will be far more accurate. But as long as you have squishy, irrational, random humans making 
irrational decisions, the math is going to be far from perfect. Yeah, I, I just think it's incredibly important debate. And I mean, I've got my own opinion. I don't think anybody cares what I think. But even Richard Clarida, who helped with Gertler, helped really codify this dialogue of optimal strategies and the use of differential sure. equations to uh, to lead to a complex dynamic system. Even he says it needs to be amended with a little bit of the human condition. We are not profit-maximizing uh, rational beings. Yeah. We are error-laden. Um, the interview I did with uh, Danny Kahneman just shows how our cognitive mm -hmm. sides are just so subject to failure. Yeah. Barry, I want to dive into the argument of the week, and you are on one side. You don't trust the countability of America's efficiency, America's productivity. You think we're doing a lot better than the numbers show. That, that's right. You know, the George Box's famous aphorism are, was all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I'm slowly coming around to um, uh, the recognition that not only is the productivity model wrong, it, it may not even be useful. I think we're measuring the wrong thing and measuring it incorrectly. We have numbers coming up. Barry will be great at giving us perspective on this as well. When a, when a store comes out, a retail store, I'm like, yeah, 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 fine. Except retail now is flat on its back, which means everybody uh, pays attention to Mr. Lundgren's shop. Macy's is out. They got a revenue beat. That looks good. But boy, is Lundgren, who's retiring, and his new management, are they adapting? They will close 100 Macy's full-line stores. They have plans to recreate the physical store presence. Barry, this comes off the bombshell yesterday. The two designers, Michael Kors and I believe Coach, basically went to Macy's and said, we're done. We're done with the formula. We're done with the game. And in the case of Michael Kors, they pulled away a huge part of their creativity from Macy's and you assume all other department stores. Yeah, there are, there are a number of big secular cycles, big secular trends affecting what we're seeing in retail, yeah. not the least of which is Amazon. But now add to that, you know, the baby boomers uh, used to call it uh, shopping therapy, sports shopping. There's a whole n number of different phrases. Uh, we could all lump it under the phrase materialism. The millennials, the group of, of kids out there, they're not car buyers. They're sharers. They're not material acquires their experience, experiential um, yeah. vacations and things like that. This shift is affecting the entire retail space. I would agree with that, but I think as much dynamic is how we forget, and Barry, you're great at this, we forget that the top line of any business operation mm -hmm. is about unit dynamics yep. and about price dynamics. And to, with great respect to the many lives of Terry uh, Lundgren, <laughs> the price dynamics now are brutally efficient because of digital technology, because of savviness, and because maybe overcapacity. There's just um, too much stuff out I, there. I continue to be fascinated so, so you're a retailer or you're a goods manufacturer and you want to sell into different markets and you have to figure out a way how to sell this same widget or the same uh, dress or this same product into five different markets. So 
you, the early adopters are going to pay full price uh, even before the season starts. Then it goes with your normal. Okay, okay but when's back to school? Barry, help me here. You... Uh, that seems to start sometime around when school ends. Uh, August, we're already late into the. Here we yeah. are. It's August eleventh. Uh, we're late into back to school. I mean, one of the things, folks, that want to look at, and you know, many of you know, I spent a lot of time looking at the fashion industry. It's from my family from years ago. Is the girl magazines in September are the size of the Manhattan phone book? The... Is this the year where they're not? I don't know. I got to see what you know. <sighs> That's Vogue, a, that's a good question. Vogue looks like. But. Right. Vogue, Glamour, go down the list. Yeah. Uh, Conde Ness losses are everybody else okay. online's game. Joining us now, and it is a perfect, perfect, perfect time to speak to Stephen Ratner. Will it advisors... But uh, a number of jobs, I, I've often said this, he walked by me in the Renaissance building when he was Tsar Dakar a few years ago with a governmental scowl on his face. It was not a scowl he had at Brown in economics a few years ago. How Many long years. did it take you to recover from being the car czar? Was it like two weekends in the Hamptons or did it take like three years to recover? I, I didn't need to recover because it was a fantastic experience, and I was really so glad to serve, and uh, uh, yeah. it was the experience of a lifetime. I want to talk to you with the Macy's news today. Macy's down 51%. They get a bounce here, folks, off the, the, the better-than-good earnings about this strange thing called buy and hold. You're a money guy. You manage money. Full disclosure for uh, Mr. Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg is uh, majority owner of Bloomberg LP and, of course, at this radio station how does Steve Ratner define buy and hold, and how do you deal with the realities of buy and hold when structurally something like Macy's craters? You mean in terms of whether you should sell your stock or yeah, you should sell your stock? Uh, look, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but when okay, it, no if, if we have a long-term strategy. <laughs> it gets harder to know when to sell that stock. Well, as John Maynard Keynes was said to have said, but didn't actually say, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? So you make an investment decision, and yes, virtually every investment decision we make is with the idea of a long-term a long hold. But if, if the world changes, if the company changes, if things change, then you change your mind and you move on. So let's ask a, a broader question. Uh, when you're buying equities generally, are you selecting individual stocks? Are you buying broader indices? What sort of approach do you think makes sense if you have that long-term perspective? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not a stock picker. I'm a private equity guy. So we employ stock pickers both inside the firm as well as outside money managers. And let, let's just – these are basic things you guys know much better than I do. The U.S. equity markets are highly efficient. The probability that any investor is going to be able to outperform the U.S. equity markets, particularly when fees are added, is not so high. Um, we believe that we have identified managers, and over time they have uh, produced so-called alpha in the U.S. equity markets, net of fees. But it's really hard. It's one of those don't try this at home yeah, kind of things. Right. right. Barry, um, Robert Kirby, Capital Guardian Trust, L.A., years ago, the legendary Robert Kirby said, if you're making two percentage points – Net, that's real big success over benchmark. 
That's a huge success. Yeah. We would we would we would send champagne to any U.S. equity yeah. manager who consistently produced 200 basis points yeah, of alpha. Yeah, but Steve, you send you send me champagne to come on the show. <laughs> yes, That's yeah, great, I do. Barry. I do. I buy my way on here. <laughs> hence, I hence the mimosas uh, early in the morning. It is. But you know, outside the U.S., it's a little bit different. There are many. There much less. There are much less efficient markets around the world. Uh, even places like Japan, where a lot of money managers left because they just didn't think they could make money, has become a pretty inefficient market. So we look around the world. We look at developed ex-North America. We look at emerging markets. We, we just were speaking to the folks at BlackRock who are describing a sudden influx of capital into EM. Uh, where should the long-term investor be looking? Do you only focus on the efficient U.S.? Or do you take advantage of inefficiencies and look around the world? Uh, the long-term individual investor or even institutional investor in the U.S. is fundamentally operating as a dollar-based institution. And so I believe that they should keep the majority of their assets in the U.S., uh, recognizing their highly efficient markets, perhaps simply uh, investing them passively unless they feel they have the skill to identify managers. And then, you know, and then in a well-routed portfolio, you would take, say, another 20%, and you'd put that into the developed world, Europe and Japan, and you might take 10% or a little bit more and put that into EM, uh, and put that into EM, where, so you've got your risk management in a prudent zone, as well as your currency alignment. Tom, what do you think? I, I think that what is fascinating here in the great distortion that we're living in is what the new actuarial assumption would be. Now, you like to say you're a private equity guy, and you're always downplaying your skills. Baloney. You know what the actuarial number is. What is our deep money, what are our insurance companies and our pension plans going to do when they're looking at a new actuarial assumption? It's, come on, Steve, 5%? This, no, this, a, this is a, a disaster that is not well-recognized. I know it is well-recognized in this room and probably in this building. But the situation for pension funds, which historically have invested a substantial part of their assets in fixed income and used, to ma and used that income to match against their liabilities, they are in deep doo-doo, not to use a technical term. Because mm -hmm. exactly as you're saying, if you've got assumptions of 7, 7.5, 7 some of them probably still even have 8% yeah. in your calculations, you're making 2% at the moment. You are getting deeper and deeper into a very bad, a deep hole. It's, yeah. a, it's a huge problem. I mean, Barry, I think this is like a major, major issue going into 2017. Um, Steve Ratner, we, we run out of time. Thank you so much for coming. Don't be a stranger. I'm you know, uh, happy to come anytime. Bring, I have my Bloomberg badge. Yeah, just got uh, your, just let me know. Okay, bring champagne. Steve Ratner with Willard Associates uh, uh, on a buy and hold or lack of buy and hold. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.